Section 11 of Come Rack, Come Rope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. Come Rack, Come Rope by Robert Hugh Benson. Book 2, Chapter 2, Part 1. Anthony lifted his whip and pointed. London, he said. Marjorie nodded. She was too tired to speak. The journey had taken them some ten days, by easy stages. Each night they had slept at an inn, except once when they stayed with friends of the Babingtons and had heard mass. They had had the small and usual adventures. A horse had fallen lame, a baggage horse had bolted, they had passed two or three hunting parties. They had been stared at in villages and saluted, and stared at and not saluted. Rain had fallen. The clouds had cleared again, and the clouds had gathered once more, and rain had again fallen. The sun morning by morning, and stood on the left, and evening by evening gone down again on the right. They were a small party for so long a journey, the three with four servants, two men and two maids. The men had ridden armed, as the custom was. One rode in front, then came the two ladies with Anthony, then the two maids, and behind them the second man. In towns and villages they closed up together lest they should be separated, and then spread out once more as the long straight track lengthened before them. Anthony and the two men-servants carried each a case of dags or pistols at the saddle bow for fear of highwaymen, but none had troubled them. A strange dreamlike mood had come down on Marjorie. At times it seemed to her in her fatigue as if she had done nothing all her life but ride. At times, as she sat rocking, she was living still at home, sitting in the parlour, watching her mother. The illusion was so clear and continuous that its departure, when her horse stumbled or a companion spoke, was as an awakening from a dream. At other times she looked about her, talked, asked questions. She found Mistress Alice Babington, a pleasant friend, some ten years older than herself, who knew London well and had plenty to tell her. She was a fair woman, well-built and active, very fond of her brother, whom she treated almost as a mother treats a son. But she seemed not to be in his confidence, and even not to wish to be. She thought more of his comfort than of his ideals. She was a Catholic, of course, but of the quiet, assured kind, and seemed unable to believe that anyone could seriously be anything else. She seemed completely confident that the present stress was a passing one, and that when politics had run their course, it would presently disappear. Marjorie found her as comfortable as a pillow when she was low enough to rest on her. Though Marjorie had nodded only when the spires of London shone up suddenly in the evening light, a sharp internal interest awakened in her. It was as astonishing as a miracle that the end should be in sight. The past ten days had made it seem to her as if all things which she desired must eternally recede. She touched her horse unconsciously and stared out between his ears, sitting upright and alert again. It was not a great deal that met the eye, but it was so disposed as to suggest a great deal more. Far away to the right lay a faint haze, and in it appeared towers and spires, with gleams of sharp white here and there, 
where some tall building rose above the dark eaves. To the left again appeared similar signs of another town, the same haze, towers and spires linked to the first. She knew what they were. She had heard half a dozen times already of the two towns that made London, running continuously in one long line, however, which grew thin by St. Mary's Hospital and St. Martin's, she was told, the two troops of houses and churches that had grown up about the two centres of court and city, Westminster and the city itself. But it was none the less startling to see these with her proper eyes. Presently, in spite of herself, as she saw the spire of St. Clement's Dane, where she was told they must turn citywards, she began to talk, and Anthony to answer. Part two. Dark was beginning to fall, and the lamps to be lighted as they rode in, at last half an hour later, across the fleet ditch, through Ludgate, and turned up toward Cheapside. They were to stay at an inn where Anthony was accustomed to lodge when he was not with friends, an inn, too, of which the landlord was in sympathy with the old ways, and where friends could come and go without suspicion. It was here, perhaps, that letters would be waiting for them from Rheims. Marjorie had known Derby only among the greater towns, and neither this nor the towns where she had stayed night by night during the journey had prepared her in the least for the amazing rush and splendour of the city itself. A fine cold rain was falling, and this, she was told, had driven half the inhabitants within doors. But even so, it appeared to her that London was far beyond her imaginings. Beneath here, in the deep and narrow channel of houses up which they rode, narrowed yet further by the rows of stalls that were ranged along the pathways on either side, the lamps were kindling swiftly, in windows as well as in the street. Here and there hung great flaring torches, and the vast eaves and walls overhead shone in the light of the fires with a rich gilding threw it back. Beyond them again, solemn and towering, leaned over the enormous roofs, and everywhere it seemed to her, fresh from the silence and solitude of the country, countless hundreds of moving faces were turned up to her from doorways and windows, as well as from the groups that hurried along under the shelter of the walls and the air was full of talking and laughter and footsteps. It meant nothing to her at present except inextricable confusion, the gleam of arms as a patrol passed by, the important little group making its way with torches, the dogs that scuffled in the roadway, the party of apprentices singing together loudly with linked arms plunging up a side street, the hooded women chattering together with gestures beneath a low-hung roof, the calling from side to side of the twisting street, the bargaining of the sellers at the stalls, all this, with the rattle of their own horses' feet and the jingling of the bits, combined only to make a noisy and brilliant spectacle without sense or signification. Mistress Alice glanced at her, smiling. You are tired, she said. We're nearly there. That is St. Paul's on the right. Ah, that gave her peace. They were turning off from the main street, just as her friend spoke but she had time to catch a glimpse of what appeared at first sight a mere gulf of darkness, and then, as they turned, resolved itself into a vast and solemn pile, grey-lined against black. Lights burned far across the wide churchyard, as well as in the windows of the high houses that crowned the wall, and figures moved against the glow, tiny as dolls. Then she remembered again how God had once been worshipped there indeed, 
in the great house built to his honour, but was no longer so worshipped. Or, if it was the same God as some claimed, at least the character of him was very differently conceived. The Red Bull again increased her sense of rest, since all inns are alike. A curved archway opened on the narrow street, and beneath this they rode to find themselves in a paved court already lighted, surrounded by window-pierced walls and high galleries to right and left. The stamping of horses from the further end, and almost immediately the appearance of a couple of hostlers, showed where the stables lay. Beside it she could see through the door of the brightly lit bakehouse. She was terribly stiff, as she found, when she limped up the three or four stairs that led up to the door of the living part of the inn, and she was glad enough to sit down in a wide, low parlour with her friend as Mr. Babington went in search of the host. The room was lighted only by a fire leaping in the chimney, and she could make out little except that pieces of stuff hung upon the walls, and a low row of metal vessels and plates were ranged in a rack between the windows. It is a quiet inn, said Alice. Marjorie nodded again. She was too tired to speak, and almost immediately Anthony came back with a tall, clean-shaven, middle-aged man in an apron following behind. It is all well, he said. We can have our rooms and the parlour complete. These are the ladies, he added. The landlord bowed a little with a dignity beyond that of his dress. Supper shall be served immediately, madam, he said, with a tactful impartiality toward them both. They were indeed very pleasant rooms, and as Anthony had described them to her, were situated toward the back of the long low house on the first floor, with a private staircase leading straight up from the yard to the parlour itself. The sleeping rooms, too, opened upon the parlour. That which the two ladies were to occupy was furthest from the yard for quietness' sake, that in which Anthony and his man would sleep upon the other side. The windows of all three looked straight out upon a little walled garden that appeared to be the property of some other house. The rooms were plainly furnished, but had a sort of dignity about them, especially in the carved woodwork about the doors and windows. There was a fireplace in the parlour, plainly a recent addition, and a maid rose from kindling the logs and turf as the two ladies came back after washing and changing. The table was already laid, lit by a couple of candles. It was laid with fine napery, and the cutlery was clean and solid. Marjorie looked round the room once more, and as she sat down, Anthony came in, still in his mud-splashed dress, carrying three or four letters in his hands. News, he said. I will be with you immediately, and vanished into his room. The sense of home was deepening on Marjorie every moment. This room in which she sat might, with a little fancy, be thought to resemble the hall at Booth's edge. It was not so high indeed, but the plain solidity of the walls and woodwork, the aspect of the supper-table, and the quiet, so refreshing after the noises of the day, and above all after the din of their mile-long ride to the city, these little things, together with the knowledge that the journey was done at last, and that her old friend Robin was, if not already come, at least soon to arrive. These little things helped to soothe and reassure her. She wondered how her mother found herself. When Anthony came back, the supper was all laid out. He had given orders that no waiting was to be done. His own servants would do what was necessary. 
He had a bright and interested face, Marjorie thought. And the instant they were sat down, she knew the reason of it. We are just in time, he said. These letters have been lying here for me the last week. They will be here, they tell me, by tomorrow night. But that is not all. He glanced round the dusky room. Then he laid down the knife with which he was carving, and spoke in a yet lower voice. Father Campion is in the house, he said. His sister started. In the house? Do you mean? He nodded mysteriously as he took up the knife again. He has been here three or four days. The rooms are full in the, in the usual place, and I have spoken with him. He is coming here after supper. He had already supped. Marjorie leaned back in her chair, but she said nothing, for beneath in the house came the sound of singing from the tavern parlour where boys were performing madrigals. It seemed to her incredible that she should presently be speaking with the man whose name was already affecting England, as perhaps no priest's name had ever affected it. He had been in England, she knew, comparatively a short time. Yet in that time his name had run like fire from mouth to mouth. To the minds of the Protestants there was something almost diabolical about the man. He was here, he was there, he was everywhere. And yet when the search was up, he was nowhere. Tales were told of his eloquence that increased the impression that he made a thousandfold. It was said that he could wild birds off their branches and the beasts from their lairs, and this eloquence, it was known, could be heard only by initiates in far-off country houses or in quiet, unsuspected places in the cities. He preached in some shrouded and locked room in London one day, and the next thirty miles off in a cow-shed to rustics, and his learning and his subtlety were equal to his eloquence. Her Grace had heard him at Oxford years ago, before his conversion, and it was said would refuse him nothing, even now, if he would but be reasonable in his religion. Even Canterbury, it was reported, might be his. And if he would not be reasonable, then, as was fully in accordance with what was known of her grace, nothing was too bad for him. Such feeling, then, on the part of Protestants, found its fellow in that of the Catholics. He was their champion, as no other man could be. Had he not issued his famous challenge to any and all of the Protestant divines, to meet them in any argument on religion that they cared to select, in any place and at any time, if only his own safe conduct were secure. And was it not notorious that none would meet him? He was indeed a fire, a smoke in the nostrils of his adversaries, a flame in the hearts of his friends. Everywhere he ranged, he and his comrade, Father Persons, sometimes in company, sometimes apart, and wherever they went the faith blazed up anew from its dying embers in the lives of rustic knave and squire and she was to see him he is here for four or five days only went on anthony presently still in a low cautious voice the hunt is very hot they say not even the host knows who he is or at least makes that he does not he is under another name of course it is mr edmonds this time he was in Essex, he tells me, but comes to the wolves' den for safety. It is safer, he says, to sit secure in the midst of the trap than to wander about its doors, for when the doors are opened he can run out again, if no one knows he is there. Part three. When supper was finished at last, and the maids had borne away the dishes, there came almost immediately a tap upon the door. 
and before any could answer, there walked in a man, smiling. He was of middle size, dressed in a dark gentleman's suit, carrying his feathered hat in his hand with his sword. He appeared far younger than Marjorie had expected, scarcely more than thirty years old, of a dark and yet clear complexion, large-eyed with a look of humour. His hair was long and brushed back, and a soft pointed beard and moustache covered the lower part of his face. He moved briskly and assuredly, as one wholly at his ease. "'I am come to the right room,' he said. "'That is as well.' His voice, too, had a ring of gaiety in it. It was low, quite clear, and very sympathetic, and his manners, as Marjorie observed, were those of a cultivated gentleman, without even a trace of the priest. She would not have been astonished if she had been told that the man was of the court, or some great personage of the country. There was no trace of furtive hurry or of alarm about him. He moved deftly and competently, and when he sat down after the proper greetings, crossed one leg over the other so that he could nurse his foot. It seemed more incredible, even than she had thought, that this was Father Campion. "'You have pleasant rooms here, and music to cheer you, too,' he said. "'I understand that you are often here, Mr. Babington.' Anthony explained that he found them convenient and very secure. "'Roberts is a prudent landlord,' he said. Father Campion nodded. He knows his own business, which is what few landlords do in these degenerate days. He knows nothing at all of his guests. In that he is even more of an exception. His eyes twinkled delightfully at the ladies. And so, he said, God blesses him and those who use his house. They talked for a few minutes in this manner. Father Campion spoke of the high duty that lay on all country ladies to make themselves acquainted with the sights of the town and spoke of three or four of these. Her grace, of course, must be seen. That was the greatest sight of all. They must make an opportunity for that. And there would surely be no difficulty, since her grace liked nothing better than to be looked at. And they must go up the river by water, if the weather allowed, from the tower to Westminster. Not from Westminster to the tower, since that was the way that traitors came, and no good Catholic could, even in appearance, be a traitor, and if they pleased, he would himself be their guide for a part of their adventures. He was to lie hid, he told them, and he knew no better way to do that than to flaunt as boldly as possible in the open ways. If I lay in my room, said he, with a bolt drawn, I would soon have some busy fellow knocking on the door to know what I did there. But if I could but dine with her grace, or take an hour with Mr. Topcliffe, I should be secure forever. Marjorie glanced shyly towards Alice, as if to ask a question. She was listening, it seemed to her, with every nerve of her tired body. The priest saw the glance. Mr. Topcliffe, madam? Well, let us say he is a dear friend of the lieutenant of the tower, and has, I think, lodgings there just now. And he is even a friend of Catholics, too, to such at least as desire a heavenly crown. He is an informer and a tormentor, broke in Anthony harshly. Well, sir, let us say that he is very loyal to the letter of the law, and that he presides over our Protestant bed of procrustes. The, began Marjorie, emboldened by the kindness of the priest's voice, the bed of procrustes, madam, was a bed to which all who lay upon it had to be conformed. 
Those that were too long were made short, and those that were too short were made long. It is a pleasant classical name for the rack. Marjorie caught her breath, but Father Campion went on smoothly. We shall have a clear day tomorrow, I think, he said. If you are at liberty, sir, and these ladies are not too wearied, I have a little business in Westminster and... Why, yes, said Anthony, for tomorrow night we expect friends from Rheims, sir. The priest dropped his foot and leaned forward. From Rheims, he said sharply. The other nodded. Eight or ten at least will arrive. Not all are priests. One is a friend of our own from Derbyshire, who will not be made priest for five years yet. I have not heard they were to come so soon, said Father Campion. And what a company of them! There are a few of them who have been here before. Mr. Ballard is one of them. The priest was silent an instant. Mr. Ballard, he said. Ballard! Yes, he has been here before. He travels as Captain Fortescue, does he not? You are a friend of his? Yes, sir. Father Campion made as if he would speak, but interrupted himself and was silent. It seemed to Marjorie as if another mood was fallen on him. Presently they were talking again of London and its sights. Part 4 In spite of her weariness, Marjorie could not sleep for an hour or two after she had gone to bed. It was an extraordinary experience to her to have fallen in, on the very night of her coming to London, with the one man whose name stood to her for all that was gallant in her faith. As she lay there, listening to the steady breathing of Alice, who knew no such tremors of romance, to the occasional stamp of a horse across the yard, and once or twice two voices and footsteps passing on some paved way between the houses, she rehearsed again and again to herself the tale she had heard of him. Now and again she thought of Robin. She wondered whether he too one day, and not of necessity a far distant day, since promotion came quickly in this war of fate, would occupy some post like that which this man held so gaily and so courageously and for the first time, perhaps, she understood, not in vision merely, but in sober thought, what the life of a priest in those days signified. Certainly she had met man after man before. She had entertained them often enough in her mother's place, and had provided by her own wits for their security. Men who went in peril of liberty and even of life. But here, within the walls of London, in this wolves' den, as Father Campion had called it, where men brushed against one another continually and looked into a thousand faces a day, where patrols went noisily with lights and weapons, where the great tower stood, where her grace, the mistress of the wolves, had her dwelling. Here peril assumed another aspect, and pain and death another reality, from that which they presented on the wind-swept hills and the secret valleys of the country from which they came. And it was with Father Campion himself, in his very flesh, that she had talked this evening. It was Father Campion who had given her that swift, kindly look of commendation, as Mr. Babington had spoken of her reason for coming to London, and of her hospitality to wandering priests. Father Campion, the angel of the church, was in England, and tomorrow Robin, too, would be here. Then, as sleep began to come down on her tired and excited brain, and to form, as so often under such conditions, little visible images, even before the reason itself is lulled, there began to pass before her first tiny and delicate pictures of what she had seen to-day. 
the low hills to the north of london dull and dark below the heavy sky but light immediately above the horizon as the sun sank down the appearance of her horse's ears those ears and that tuft of wayward mane between them of which she had grown so weary the lighted walls of london streets the monstrous shadows of the eaves the flare of lights the moving figures these came first and then faces father campion smiling with white teeth and narrowed eyes bright against the dark chimney-breast alice's serene features framed in flaxen hair and then as sleep had all but conquered her the imagination sent up one last idea and a face came into being before her so formless yet so full so sinister so fierce and so distorted that she drew a sudden breath and sat up trembling why had they spoken to her of topcliffe end of book 2 chapter 2 recording by james carson